And in these first six things, he was talking about our relationship with other people, right? Hate, lust, marriage. Now he's going to shift gears a little bit. In the next section of Scripture, from this first verse of chapter 6 to about the 12th verse of of chapter 7, he's going to start to describe to us how we get through life in a world where we're in the presence of God. And in this first section, he's shifting gears not to our relationship with one another, but our relationship with him. And it kind of, kind of takes off of Matthew 22. Do you remember when the Pharisees asked him, what was the greatest commandment? And he said, love the Lord your God with all your, all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. He said, this is the greatest, but the second is close. Love your neighbor as yourself. So he's been describing to us so far how to love our neighbor as ourself. Now we're going to talk about God. Now we're going to talk about this relationship we have with our Heavenly Father. And we're going to look at mercy and compassion. And we're going to look at prayer. And we're going to look at fasting. But we're going to find some common themes with what we have already learned. Right? We're going to find that the fair, our conduct should be different than the Pharisees. And it should also be different than the pagans and the tax collectors. Remember the last lesson when we talked about loving our enemies? That was different than the pagans and the tax collectors. We're going to find that our conduct may be different than the so-called religious, but it's certainly going to be different than the world. And we're going to find that once again, the Pharisees have it wrong. Once again, it's a matter of the heart. And he's going to use the same sort of teaching pattern. Remember back in 5.20, he said, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he gave us six illustrations. Okay, We're going to do the same thing here. In 6.1, he's going to give us the principle. And then we're going to illustrate and apply it. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his, in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, said, Chapter 6 of Matthew is one of the most uncomfortable chapters in the entire Bible to read. Why is that? Because we are going to have to hold a mirror up to our soul. And we're going to have to be brutally honest with ourselves, And we're going to have to take a really good look at who we are. And it's going to be a little humbling and it's going to be a little humiliating. But the bottom line is, we're going to find that we need a Savior. So, So are you ready to get uncomfortable? Ready to let the Holy Spirit do a little bit of work? All right. Verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Here's the principle. Our motivation for practicing righteousness can either please men or please God. That's it. Let's go to lunch. Well, maybe there's a few details. If we sit and think about it a minute, we're going to have a question immediately. Because just a few verses before, in 5.16, Jesus said, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. Now he's saying, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. Doesn't this seem to be a contradiction? Right? This just demonstrates this delicate nature of being a Christian. Being a Christian is not for the faint of heart. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. We already see that from the Pharisees. That would be easy. Checklist, give me a checklist any day. I can do a checklist. Being a Christian is about relationships. It's about our relationship first with an invisible risen Savior. It's about our relationship with each other. It's about our relationship with the world. 
It's not as easy as a, as a checklist. The uh, Bible scholar John Stott, in, in examining these two seemingly contradictory statements, said this. If your emotion in a situation is to cower, is to, is to not put forth your Christianity, is to not demonstrate your faith, then you should think of 516. Let your light so shine before men. But if your emotion at the moment is vanity, look how good I am. Watch me do this. Watch how I give. Then he says, 6-1, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. A.B. Bruce said this, we should show our righteousness when tempted to hide it. We should hide our righteousness when tempted to show it. Is anybody confused yet? Okay. Here's what Martin Lloyd-Jones said. To spread the gospel, to glorify God, to do the work of God, we must attract attention to ourselves while at the same time not attracting attention to ourselves. That cleared it up, didn't it? Let me read it again. I have it in special color here just so I don't get it wrong. We must attract attention to ourselves while at the same time not attracting attention to ourselves. How do we do that? Well, it's the same thing we've been talking about for weeks now. It's not a code of behavior. It's an attitude. We've been talking about matters of the heart. Well, this is a very specific matter of the heart. What is our motivation when we do something? So the first thing we have to understand about this idea of do we practice righteousness to please men or to please God is... It's delicate. It's not easy. It's a balancing act. We almost have to have the, the balance and poise of a ballerina. I think last time I spoke, I compared us to football players. So now we're both football players and ballerinas. I'm sure that helped clear it up, right? Okay. Second, what Jesus is telling us is when we practice our righteousness, when we practice our relationship with our Heavenly Father, it's really a choice between pleasing ourselves and pleasing Him. Now, once again... Bible scholar John Stott said there were three choices when we do something, when we, when we act in righteousness. Number one, we can do it to please God. Number two, we can do it to please men. Number three, we can do it to please ourselves. I'm going to boldly and respectfully disagree with the great Bible scholar John Stott. And I can do that because I have another great Bible scholar on my side. And he says, again, Martin Lloyd-Jones, love this guy, he says this, when we act in righteousness to please men, to get the praise of men, we're really acting in selfishness, right? We want the praise for us. So it's just a means to get the same thing. Jesus pointed this out too. In John chapter 12, he has made his entry into Jerusalem near the end of his life. He is teaching some very tough things about his upcoming death and how he will need to be lifted up. And he's interacting with the crowd and the crowd has questions for him about who the Messiah is and what the Messiah should do. And then in summarizing these events, John says this, Nevertheless, many, even the authorities, Pharisees, Sadducees, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Recently, Jane and the boys and I have gone to a couple of events at the Indianapolis Repertory Theater. Anybody been there for, for events, right? We've gone and seen a couple of plays. And I always find it interesting that at the beginning of the performance, one of the production team will come out and kind of welcome us. But they always make a, a, a point 
of identifying the big donors because you, you don't put on theater productions without a lot of help from donors. And that's fine and that's good and those people should be honored. But there's certainly a part of me that I think back in their production meetings, they like, make sure you mention these people make sure, because it is our nature to want to be recognized. And I'm sure in addition to saying we need to honor these people because of the good works that they have done, they're also saying we need to honor these people to appeal to their vanity so they'll do it again. Because that's how we are. That's our nature. Acts that appear selfless can actually be in reality done with the wrong motivation and be selfish. Now this third little nuance, this third little refinement to our main point, what is our motivation to please God or to please men? This is the money one. If you're taking notes, you need an asterisk, you're going to underline, you need to put a box around this. The ultimate issue here is our relationship with God. Where is that relationship? If our goal is to please God, to please only Him, to please Him always, and to please Him in everything, if we can have that attitude and motivation, we can't go wrong. Certainly easier said than done, is it not? There's a lot to that. I just want to, I want to point out one aspect that, that we need to incorporate in our lives, and that is this. We need to remember that at every moment we are in the presence of God. In the morning when we wake up, our first thought should be, God is with me. Positive. As we go through our day, God is with me. He's watching me. He's a part of my life. As I lay my head to rest in the evening. The psalmist in Psalm 139 said this, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? What, what would our lives be like if we could live them with this in the front of our mind at every moment? God is with me. God is watching. What would our world be like if every follower of Christ lived, lived their life and made their decisions with that in the front of their minds? What's the potential there? The final little nuance, little refinement to our, to our main lesson I want to make is about rewards. Apparently, and despite the gray in my beard, I wasn't around then, at the beginning of the last century, there was quite a controversy about this idea of rewards based on, on these verses. And the controversy centered on this, that even if we seek only the reward from God, aren't we still selfishly seeking a reward? Well, that just kind of flies in the face of Scripture. Okay? I would encourage you to do this in your CGs this week. If you get out a search engine for the Bible, like Bible Gateway or something like that, do a search on the word reward from Matthew to Revelation. See how many times it comes up. See how many times Jesus mentions it in a positive way. Okay, there, there's nothing wrong with the appropriate reward, and reward, reward in the appropriate setting. In fact, isn't that what the Beatitudes is about? Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Isn't that what the second half of all of those statements are? For this will happen to you. 
So rewards are all a part of, of this Christian experience. Appropriate rewards for the appropriate actions and the, the appropriate activity. Here's the part we need to be aware of, though. What does Jesus say here if we seek our reward from men? This is a terrifying thought. No reward from God for those who seek it from men. For then you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Keep that in mind. So here's our big point. Our motivation for practicing righteousness can either be to please men or to please God. So how does that apply to giving? The topic for today. Let's look back at the scripture, verses 2 through 4. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that you are gi- your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do. Who's, who's he referring to here as the hypocrites? It's, it's the Pharisees again. We've, we've been kind of rough on the Pharisees. I thought it might be a good idea to take just a moment to make sure we understand who these guys are. Because if you're a new believer or someone who doesn't a follow, isn't a follower of Christ yet, and this is all new to you and you've been here the last couple of weeks, you might be saying to yourself, Pharisees, who are these guys? They are not doing things very well. Okay, let's go back to, just for a moment, to Esther, right? We, we were talking about the, the nation of Israel being in exile. The Babylonians come in, capture them, send them off into exile. The Persians take over, allow them to return to their land. As we saw in Esther, not all of them went back. After this period of time, the nation of Israel in their religious life kind of shifted a little bit. They shifted from being a very ceremonial-centered religious culture, sacrifices and so forth, to a more moral, ethical culture. Now, that doesn't mean they set the ceremonial completely aside. We know about the pilgrimages to the temple during Passover and such. But they kind of shifted their focus. And when they did that, their religious life began to center around the local synagogue, led by the teacher rabbi there. And those people were strongly influenced by the scribes and the Pharisees because what they began to do as they took on this moral, ethical approach is to, is to study the law more clearly and then to study it more deeply. And then be, they began to, to develop these traditions that we've talked about before, that the Pharisees, the, the traditions of the elders. And so they kept adding on. So when they read, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy... Now they came up with a list of 473 things you could do on the Sabbath or couldn't do on the Sabbath, right? They refined it. And it got to the point where some of these traditions were almost held as divine in origin, almost held as with Scripture. Now, when anything like this happens, there were disagreements. There were different groups. Look at today, right? We have Catholics and Protestants. Within Protestantism, we have Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians, Pentecostals. Don't even get us started on Mormons and Jehovah's Witness. That'll take too long. Okay? But we have different groups. Okay? And amongst the groups that became prominent were the Sadducees and the Pharisees. If you do a word search on the Old Testament, you will not find the word Sadducee or Pharisee. They came about in this intertestamental period. Okay? So we get to the time of Christ. And at that time, the Sadducees, who were not very well liked, they controlled the temple and the Sanhedrin for about 100 years. So they were kind of like the New York Yankees of the first century. 
yes, I, I went there. <laughs> so, Sadducees, typically wealthy uh, priestly class from Levites, right? Caiaphas, the high priest at the time of Jesus' trial and crucifixion, was a Sadducee. Uh, as I said, not very like, but in control. Pharisees tended to be, uh, although they tried to control the Sanhedrin and the temple, more local uh, to the local synagogues. And they were imposing these rules. They were all rules, 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 rules. They loved the rules. How are you going to do things? How are you not going to do things? Okay? So the Pharisees then, of course, interacted with Jesus. A few of the things that they did, for example, were accuse Jesus of being a demon. Do you recall when Jesus cast out demons? They said, oh, you must be a demon too, because that's how he cast them out. Always about the rules, they would ask the disciples, why is your master eating with tax collectors? They would ask Jesus, why are your disciples harvesting on the Sabbath day? Rules, rules, rules. And they were especially like germophobic about hand washing. All the time, how come your disciples don't wash the hands? Okay, always asking for signs. Now, on the other hand, what about Jesus and the Pharisees? Early on, the Pharisees and the Sadducees come to Jesus' baptism. I think they thought there was a pitch in, I'm not sure. He calls them a brood of vipers. I'm not 100% sure what that means, but the tone seems to be negative. He warns his disciples, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They didn't understand it at first, I probably wouldn't either. But he says, beware of the teaching of these guys. They were off track. He would ask them questions, normally of which would shut them up with his questions. He was always kind of, Jesus was disrespecting them in his parables. Sometimes subtly, where they might not get he was talking about them. Sometimes directly. There's the parable where he says, there's a Pharisee and a tax collector. They both go to pray. The Pharisee says, thank God I'm not like him. Thank God I'm clean and not a sinner. Thank God I tithe and fast. And then the tax collector prays, Lord, I'm a sinner. Forgive me. And then much to the Pharisees' surprise, Jesus says the tax collector got it right. So there was a very rough relationship between Jesus and the Pharisees. Now, lest we think they were all bad, remember, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Came to Christ, was a believer, right? Joseph of Arimathea, the guy whose tomb Jesus was laid in, I'm not sure if he was a Pharisee, but he was on the Sanhedrin, so he very well might have been. And then in Acts 15, we find that there was a group of believing Pharisees. So, we wanted to balance that. with understand. So that's who these guys are. Do we understand who these guys are now? So what does Jesus say? Thus, when, they, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do, in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. So the first thing he's saying is, when you give, we're going to give. And the Greek word here means more than just monetary giving. It means when we do acts of compassion and mercy, we serve a compassionate and merciful God. We are to do acts of compassion and mercy. He says, don't do it like the Pharisees. Well, how are the Pharisees doing? He says, sound no trumpet before you. Apparently, some, there's some disagreement here. Some Bible scholars think that when the Pharisees would go do their giving, they would actually march down the street and sound trumpets. Ostensibly, to let the needy know they have come to give. But really, to call attention to themselves. Most Bible scholars think they didn't actually do that, but Jesus was speaking just figuratively and you know, somewhat sarcastically that you know, when you go to give, don't be ostentatious about it. The other day I was watching 
the movie Gladiator because it was on. And it was at the very beginning of the movie and Maximus, General Maximus, had just won the final battle for the Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius and they're walking through the troops and the troops are cheering them. Meanwhile, the emperor's son, Commodus, had been traveling for days and weeks in an armed carriage with a couple of dozen armed guards and just as he approaches where the battle is, he gets out of his armed carriage, gets on his horse, gets his sword, and goes riding to where his father, the emperor, is and, and Maximus is. He jumps off of his horse, runs up to them and says, Did I miss it? Did I miss the battle? And his father knows that he does not have the courage to fight the battle. And he looks at him and says, Miss the battle? You've missed the war. And what he's saying is, I know you're just putting on an act here. I know you're just drawing attention to yourself, pretending you wanted to join the battle. And this was what Jesus is saying about these Pharisees. They were at least marching through the streets in their fine robes with their acolytes, letting everybody know it's time for me to go give. He's saying this is not the proper way to do that. He calls them hypocrites. The word hypocrite means actor in the Greek. It's the same word we use for actor, which is fine, right? Because on a stage, that's someone pretending to be someone whom they are not. But in real life, as a religious leader, a religious hypocrite is deliberately deceiving. And both of them have the same motivation. The actor on the stage and the religious hypocrite. The applause of man. So he's saying this is not how we should give. So how are we, as followers of Christ, to perform our acts of mercy, our acts of compassion? But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. He calls, God calls on us to, to give to the needy, to perform these acts. But Jesus is not just concerned with the action itself. He is concerned with the heart. He is concerned with our motivation. Therefore, we don't need to announce our actions to the world. But even more specifically, get ready for this one too. We do not need to announce our actions to ourselves. How are we going to do that? Not pat ourselves on the back. We don't really need others to think about it. Think about you. Really think about you. I've thought about me, so I've done this. So I can ask you to do this. Think about you. When you do an act of compassion, isn't there always at least a sliver of you? I'll tell you up front right now, there's a sliver of me at least, maybe a pretty big sliver, that says, aren't I great? Didn't I do a nice job? They should appreciate what I did for them. And he's saying, we have to put that aside. We need to put, quit uh, making an act of mercy into an act of vanity. The question is, what is the heart thinking when the hand is doing. So we have to take a serious look inward at ourselves. And this isn't easy. Jesus makes two comparisons I find interesting in two different parts of Scripture that, that kind of illustrate this. In Matthew 25, he's, he's, if, you, if you put it in context, Matthew 24, Jesus is talking about end times and how things will happen. And then in Matthew 25, he's kind of talking about rewards again. Um, that will happen at his return. And he says this, when the, Then the king will say to those on his right, 
Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Here comes the key. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And Jesus said, and when you did see, and when did you see a stranger, and welcome, I, got, I messed it up. And when did you see a sick person? He says, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these of my brothers, you did it to me. This, and that's not the main point of this passage, but the subtle point is this. The righteous will not even be aware of their mercy, of what they have done. Compare that to Matthew 7, which is later in the sermon we're looking at. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many great works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The exact same action. A work of righteousness here, a work of righteousness there, but a different attitude. In one example, the attitude was, I did it for God. I did it because I'm supposed to. The other one was, I never knew you. You did your actions for the praise of men. Now, two practical asides before we wrap this up. First, it's not literally possible for us to do acts of righteousness and not know it. And to forget about it and not be aware of it. Okay? The whole issue is attitude. It's motivation. In fact, in our culture today, 2014, the United States of America, when we give, we should be planning it. We should be keeping track of it, right? We need to make sure that we're supporting our church. We need to make sure that we're supporting the needy. This takes thinking. We can't just be oblivious to it. On top of it, we need to, oh, I'm keeping track of it. Because before April 15th next year, I'm going to put this on my taxes. I'm going to get a tax deduction. Now I have more to give. So we can't be oblivious. That's not what Jesus is saying. We should plan. We should be aware of it. But our attitude is as if we are unaware of it. The second point I want to make sure we make is this is not about honoring others. Today we're honoring fathers. $5 gift certificate to the chocolate mousse. Right? Not the chocolate mousse. There's nothing wrong with us honoring others. We should. Paul did it consistently in his greetings at the end of his letters. For example, Romans. He commends Priscilla or Phoebe, one of the ladies whose names begin with P. I forget. For being a hard worker and a patron. Right? It's a regular thing in his letters. Jesus commended the centurion for his faith. He said of John the Baptist, there has not been one greater. The woman who anointed him with perfume, he said, she shall be remembered throughout history. It's okay for us to be encouraging and honoring of one another. We should do this. We need to encourage Chris and Nathan and our team leaders. This is all good. You're not going to steal someone's reward by saying, thanks for picking up that chair. It's all about where their heart is. So let's not make that mistake. I found this to be a pretty tough passage, a pretty revealing passage. Again, as I, as I put myself up on that mountain and, and I listen to my Savior teaching, 
I, I can't help but find myself very convicted. As, as I put the mirror up to my soul, I, I say to myself, you know, there's a lot of times when my attitude is the world is my stage and I'm an actor putting on a character and I want others to see that character. There's a lot of times when I'm doing something where I'd like to be trumpeted for that. I'm waiting for the sound of the trumpet. That's, that's my nature. I'm a fallen human being. That's how it is. And I know that the only progress I can make is when the Holy Spirit does a work in me. But as I'm up there on the mountain listening to Jesus, and maybe not in that very message, but if I put myself in the place of a disciple and I, and I walk with Christ and continue with Him, He not only says you need to put up that mirror and look at your soul, but He says, there's a Father in Heaven who loves you. Even when I was still a sinner, before I put that mirror up, He loved me. And then He tells me about Himself, about the place He had on a heavenly throne, and He decided to become a servant. And as I see myself lost, He says he came to seek and save the lost. And I can't help but just be encouraged. And even though he has finished the work and I'm justified before a holy God in heaven, he promises his spirit will continue to work in me as I go through this life. And that one day when he returns, I will be like him. And 1 John, the Apostle John chapter 3 says this, See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called children of God. How appropriate on Father's Day. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. We're still struggling on this journey. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Motivation matters. Actions are great, but the Lord is interested in more than that. And that's why we have to continue to preach the gospel to ourselves, to speak it into one another so that our hearts can be transformed and we can, as John says here, purify ourselves. He's interested in our hearts. He's interested in our motivation. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, uh, we thank you that you're just so interested in us, that you care about us, that you're concerned with not only our actions, but our hearts. And Father, we just ask uh, this morning that uh, the message of, of your Son, of our Savior, uh, will pierce our hearts, will transform our hearts, will continue to work on our hearts as we strive to become uh, more like you, Father. We ask that you would give us pure motivations as we serve you, as we give, as we uh, do acts of righteousness, of mercy and compassion, Father. Uh, Lord, we just, uh, we just thank you uh, that you love us like you do. And uh, while we were still sinners, that, that you reached out to us even though we were unworthy.
Uh, Father, we love you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.